The following is a February 2011 Encore presentation of The Power of Words. We present First Lady Hillary Rodham Clinton's Women's Rights Are Human Rights speech delivered to the UN in a conversation and analysis between WAMC's Dr. Alan Shartok and Dr. Alita Black. Enjoy. Words are powerful. They cause fear, confusion, and anger. Or they can create shared understanding. But when words are delivered by a powerful political leader, their impact can inspire us to great action. And it is to those words that we turn now. In the power of words. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. This is the meaning of our liberty and our creed, why men and women and children of every race and every faith can join in celebration across this magnificent mall, and why a man whose father less than 60 years ago might not have been served at a local restaurant can now stand before you to take a most sacred oath. Hi, this is Alan Shartok. Welcome to The Power of Words, our year-long series that follows American history through some of the most memorable and inspiring political speeches of our time. Our series continues today with First Lady Hillary Rodham Clinton's Women's Rights Are Human Rights speech, delivered to the U.N. Fourth World Conference on Women Plenary Session on September 5, 1995, in Beijing, China. Joining us today to help set the scene and analyze the speech is Dr. Alita Black. Dr. Black is a professor of history and international affairs at the George Washington University. Dr. Black is also project director and editor of the Eleanor Roosevelt Papers, a project designed to preserve, teach, and apply Eleanor Roosevelt's writings and discussions of human rights and democratic politics and research. Dr. Black has written a number of publications, which include the Eleanor Roosevelt Papers, Volume 1, The Human Rights Years, 1945 to 1948, Casting Her Own Shadow, Eleanor Roosevelt and the Shaping of Postwar Liberalism, What I Want to Leave Behind, Democracy and the Selected Articles of Eleanor Roosevelt, Courage in a Dangerous World, The Political Writings of Eleanor Roosevelt, and with Jewel Fenzi, Democratic Women, an Oral History of the Women's National Democratic Club, and is working on a political bio of Eleanor Roosevelt. Outside the classroom, Professor Black has written teacher's guides for PBS documentaries and served as an advisor to other documentaries prepared for PBS, the History Channel, A&E, and the Discovery Channel. Professor Black is also a member of the board of directors of the Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt Institute and has received many other accolades and awards, too numerous to mention, Welcome, Alita Black. Thanks, Alan. I'm so happy to be here. So, Dr. Alita Black, let's start by asking you a true expert on women in politics, on Eleanor Roosevelt. How important Hillary Clinton becomes in her tenure as First Lady? It's hard to underestimate the importance that Hillary Clinton played not only in the battle for women's rights within the United States and children's rights within the United States, but the battle for human rights around the world. And to talk about um, this speech in Beijing, uh, it, it's hard to really put into words the emotional power that it had. I coordinated in 2009 
a conference for the High Commissioner for Human Rights and the State Department to honor Eleanor Roosevelt and the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And I thought that I had some understanding of the importance of the speech, but I had no idea until I saw a hundred women from 60 nations around the world take this and run with it in a way that put their lives at risk on a daily basis. So to say that Hillary as First Lady was influential, it's just too weak a word. I mean, I don't, I'm struggling to find the word to say how powerful and life-changing and country-changing this address was. I think you could clearly say that just as the Gettysburg Address transformed the United States, this address transformed women in the world, but rather, you know, than wait 40 years, people were or shocked and empowered and mesmerized by its delivery the day that it happened. You've talked to us before about how incredibly tough Eleanor Roosevelt was. She shared that with Hillary Clinton, didn't she? Oh, I think they share a lot together. I think they both have an amazing ability to hide their heart in order to really help their country. I think they are both extraordinary patriots, I think they're incredibly tough, loving women. I never met Eleanor Roosevelt. I certainly think I have some understanding of her from spending 20 years reading her papers. I'm proud to say that I have worked with Secretary Clinton on a lot of issues and have seen the scope of her heart and her toughness. And I think what they have in common is that they understand policy they understand what it takes to love a country. They understand what it takes to communicate a vision. And they understand how to rattle cages when you need the cages rattled. And I think they are both American gifts to the world. Hillary Clinton uh, came within a hair of becoming president of the United States. Eleanor Roosevelt had enormous influence with her columns and her mm -hmm. advice. But did you feel a sense of personal disappointment that Hillary did not become president? Uh, me personally? Yes. Well, I campaigned for 18 months and went to 14 states. But what significance would it have made if we had our first female president? Well, I think it would have made... You know, it would have made a cataclysmic difference. And I think it would, just as President Obama's election resonated in communities around the world and specific um, communities within the United States, and I'm just not talking about, you know, African-American or minority communities, I think Hillary's would have, well, I know that Hillary's would have had the similar effect. You know, I, th I think that right now she is the best Secretary of State that we've had since George Marshall. And so I am, as a woman who works with women who are seeking office around the world, as a woman who, I'm talking about myself, I work with an NGO entitled No Limits, where I'm the human rights chair, and the State Department has sent me to 10 countries around the world where women are trying to craft effective public policy. I can say it would have made a stratospheric difference. What makes her the best Secretary of State since George Marshall? Well, I, th I think there are several things. First of all, she comes to the position with extraordinary insight, having been 
involved in major world events, not only in terms of eight years in the White House, but also the international work she did before she became First Lady of the United States, but also because of her understanding and her fierce commitment to diplomacy, defense, and development. I mean, she is the first Secretary of State we've had since George Marshall, who really does understand that um, American might doesn't always have to be American defense and American diplomacy. It can also be negotiation. It can also be humanitarian aid. It can also be our commitment to human rights. It can be our fierce commitment to development and microfinance and to mediating behind the scenes without holding press conferences that always are intended to make the United States the focal point rather than uh, the country that the United States is trying to assist. Do you think uh, Hillary Clinton is tougher than Barack Obama? Oh, boy. In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. I think they're both tough. I think it depends on what the issues are and, and what the priorities are. But if you're asking me personally as an individual, and, I am. you know, not on political policy, absolutely. I mean, look what she's gone through. Nobody in American history has been that examined. So Eleanor was let down by Franklin in a way, which has been described in too many books. You've already told us that. And people have dabbled in that for a long time. Hillary was let down by Bill. We know about that. They were both, of course, women. What does this do to both women, especially in this case to Hillary? Oh, boy. It's hard for me to talk about that. What, what I will say is they obviously have redefined their relationship. It's obviously that their devotion and commitment and care for one another can survive even the most vicious public assaults. And do I wish it hadn't happened? Sure. Am I disappointed that it happened? Sure. Am I proud of Hillary? Absolutely. Because there are many people that would have folded tents and just said, you know, forget it, honey. And um, I feel quite strongly that this is their business, their decision, and um, what they did was learn to come together and learn to care for each other in new ways and learn to care for the world and lead the country. And I say, God bless them. Talk to me about Beijing and why this is an important speech. Well, Beijing, with the exception of Martin Luther King's mountaintop speech, which I witnessed as a 16-year-old in Memphis, that the other most important speech of my lifetime is this speech. And I'd like to set the stage for your listeners, if I could, because I think that many of them will forget how controversial and how gutsy this speech was. There was a huge, vocal, powerful minority who did not want Hillary to go to Beijing, much less the United States, to send a delegation to the fourth United Nations World Conference on Women. I mean, Harry Wu, who was a very noted Chinese dissident and a human rights leader who had been imprisoned for 19 years in a Chinese labor camp before he had immigrated to the United States, was arrested right before this speech as he entered China legally. He had a valid visa from Kazakhstan, and the Chinese arrested him, and they accused him of espionage. 
And so our Congress erupted. I'm just not talking about Jesse Helms and Phil Graham. I'm talking about Nancy Pelosi, you know, who was Lou's congresswoman. I mean, so there was huge opposition on the left and the right to the United States participating in this conference and Hillary giving uh, what no one would uh, yet anticipate to be a world-changing speech. And plus, the issues that were going to be addressed in this conference were volatile. I mean, the Vatican was concerned about abortion. The Islamic countries, some Islamic countries, you know, were opposed to the positions on women's rights. And some U.S. NGOs were angry that China was moving the NGOs away from the major plenary location, putting them, you know, three hours out in a mud-soaked region because the Chinese did not want to talk about maternal health or property rights for women or microfinance or their one-child policy. So there was huge opposition. And then it became even more fraught with political drama when the Chinese convicted Wu of spying and then expelled him to the United States after their political criticism of their human rights policies took hold. I mean, look at the parallel today. I mean, it's uncanny. The Nobel Peace Prize, you know, the China's defensiveness. Well, that's not new. I mean, China was defensive when the World Conference on Women was going to be there. And so, you know, that's the China focus. Well, also, there are all these huge diplomatic concerns. I mean, we're in the middle of this great nuclear proliferation battle. China had just sold M-11 missiles to Pakistan, and China had just conducted military exercises in the Taiwanese Straits. So everybody's going, why in God's name are you going to this? But Hillary saw this as an opportunity to capitalize on not only the Mexico City Conference and the Copenhagen Conference and the Nairobi Conferences, the three previous United Nations World Conferences on Women, but also to apply the principles that were adopted at the Vienna Conference on Human Rights to women. And it was a true gutsy, gutsy move. And Bill Clinton deserves credit for supporting this as well. And so when Hillary was flying to Beijing and they had written all of these different drafts, she was conferring with Madeleine Albright, who then was the American ambassador to the United Nations and was chairing the American delegation, and Hillary was our honorary chair. And so, you know, they're talking about how far this speech can go. And Madeleine Albright asked Hillary, what do you want to accomplish with this speech? And Hillary says that I want to push the envelope as far as I can for women and girls. And so Hillary huddles with Eric Schwartz, who is the human rights specialist on the National Security Council, and Winston Lord, who is Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia and the Pacific Nations, and with Albright. And they say, well, why don't you look at the effects of war on women? And Hillary takes that, but also takes it farther 
than anyone ever dared give. And unlike Eleanor, when Eleanor's speech is drafted by the State Department and focuses on the Magna Carta and the French Declaration of Rights in Man, which really talk about political and social rights, when Hillary addresses the women gathered, she totally embraces the full panoply of human rights. I mean, when, when she talks about human rights when babies are denied food or drowned, you know, when, when women are sold into slavery or prostitution for human greed, you know, when women are doused with gasoline and set on fire and burned to death, these are social and economic rights because women are persecuted because they are seen as property. When you feed, when you starve people, when you sell them to make money off them, when, um, when a violation of human rights, when young girls are brutalized, you know, by the degrading practice of female genital mutilation, you know, when women are denied the right to plan their own families and forced to have abortions or sterilized, that these are, in fact, human rights. That really is a radical statement. Nobody had held the world accountable for these violations that, who had the voice that Hillary Clinton had. And basically what she said was, not on my watch. And then she goes in to talk about, you know, freedom means the freedom to assemble and organize and debate. Yes, that's political rights, but she starts with economic and social rights. And that is, is just, it's just a transformative speech for American foreign policy. And it really is remarkable. And I think the thing that still gives me, it, it, you know, it, it sounds like a cliche, but I, I mean, I'm sitting here in the studio, you know, with tears in my eyes and, and goosebumps when I think about Hillary standing up in front of these women and the guts that it took to say that and the guts to say, you know, you know, let it be clear that once and for all, women's rights are human rights and human rights are women's rights. I mean, that's huge. Nobody of her stature had said that. And they're going through a translation. And so you have to speak slowly, unlike I do, and, you know, sort of wait for the audience to catch up. And so Hillary has said this, and there's silence. And, you know, I, I know some of the folks who wrote part of the speech, and they're thinking, oh, my God. And then all of a sudden, because they had forgotten about the translation lag, and, you know, there was silence. And then the women erupt. And as somebody now, and what I do as part of the Eleanor Roosevelt Project and, and work that I do with No Limits and the State Department and ultimately with the National Democratic Institute, I see women who every day risk their lives, their families' lives. I'm talking about women who have had gasoline poured on them and set on fire for saying that women should get paid for work. I'm talking about women who argue that systematic rape is a violation of fundamental human rights and is a crime and is a war crimes tribunal offense. 
to see the strength that they take from this and the respect and power and courage that they take from Hillary from this speech is truly transformative. And America needs to understand how this speech changed the world. You're listening to The Power of Words, a co-production of WAMC, the New York State Archives Partnership Trust. I'm Alan Shartok, and we're here with Dr. Alita Black, Professor of History and International Affairs at the George Washington University and Project Director and Editor of the Eleanor Roosevelt Papers. Okay, now that we've set the scene for First Lady Hillary Rodham Clinton's Women's Rights Are Human Rights speech, it's time to listen. Distinguished delegates and guests, I would like to thank the Secretary General for inviting me to be part of this important United Nations Fourth World Conference on Women. This is truly a celebration, a celebration of the contributions women make in every aspect of life, in the home, on the job, in the community, as mothers, wives, sisters, daughters, learners, workers, citizens, and leaders. It is also a coming together, much the way women come together every day in every country. We come together in fields and factories, in village markets and supermarkets, in living rooms and board rooms. Whether it is while playing with our children in the park or washing clothes in a river, or taking a break at the office water cooler, we come together and talk about our aspirations and concerns. And time and again, our talk turns to our children and our families. However different we may appear, there is far more that unites us than divides us. We share a common future, and we are here to find common ground so that we may help bring new dignity and respect to women and girls all over the world. And in so doing, bring new strength and stability to families as well. By gathering in Beijing, we are focusing world attention on issues that matter most in our lives, the lives of women and their families, access to education, health care, jobs and credit, the chance to enjoy basic legal and human rights, and to participate fully in the political life of our countries. There are some who question the reason for this conference. Let them listen to the voices of women in their homes, neighborhoods, and workplaces. There are some who wonder whether the lives of women and girls matter to economic and political progress around the globe. Let them look at the women gathered here and at Wairo, the homemakers and nurses, the teachers and lawyers, the policymakers, and women who run their own businesses. It is conferences like this that compel governments and peoples everywhere to listen, look, and face the world's most pressing problems. Wasn't it, after all, after the women's conference in Nairobi 10 years ago that the world focused for the first time on the crisis of domestic violence? Earlier today, I participated in a World Health Organization forum 
In that forum, we talked about ways that government officials, NGOs, and individual citizens are working to address the health problems of women and girls. Tomorrow, I will attend a gathering of the United Nations Development Fund for Women. There, the discussion will focus on local and highly successful programs that give hard-working women access to credit so they can improve their own lives and the lives of their families. What we are learning around the world is that if women are healthy and educated, their families will flourish. If women are free from violence, their families will flourish. If women have a chance to work and earn as full and equal partners in society, their families will flourish. And when families flourish, communities and nations do as well. That is why every woman, every man, every child, every family, and every nation on this planet does have a stake in the discussion that takes place here. Over the past 25 years, I have worked persistently on issues relating to women, children, and families. Over the past two and a half years, I've had the opportunity to learn more about the challenges facing women in my own country and around the world. I have met new mothers in Indonesia who come together regularly in their village to discuss nutrition, family planning, and baby care. I have met working parents in Denmark who talk about the comfort they feel in knowing that their children can be cared for in safe and nurturing after-school centers. I have met women in South Africa who helped lead the struggle to end apartheid and are now helping to build a new democracy. I have met with the leading women of my own hemisphere who are working every day to promote literacy and better health care for children in their countries. I have met women in India and Bangladesh who are taking out small loans to buy milk cows or rickshaws or thread in order to create a livelihood for themselves and their families. I have met the doctors and nurses in Belarus and Ukraine who are trying to keep children alive in the aftermath of Chernobyl. The great challenge of this conference is to give voice to women everywhere whose experiences go unnoticed, whose words go unheard. Women comprise more than half the world's population, 70% of the world's poor, and two-thirds of those who are not taught to read and write. We are the primary caretakers for most of the world's children and elderly, yet much of the work we do is not valued, not by economists, not by historians, not by popular culture, not by government leaders. At this very moment, as we sit here, women around the world are giving birth, raising children, cooking meals, washing clothes, cleaning houses, planting crops, working on assembly lines, running companies, and running countries. Women also are dying from diseases that should have been prevented or treated. They are watching their children succumb to malnutrition caused by poverty and economic deprivation. They are being denied the right to go to school by their own fathers and brothers. They are being forced into prostitution, and they are being barred from the bank lending offices and banned from the ballot box. Those of us who have the opportunity to be here have the responsibility to speak for those who could not. 
As an American, I want to speak for women in my own country, women who are raising children on the minimum wage, women who can't afford health care or child care, women whose lives are threatened by violence, including violence in their own homes. I want to speak up for mothers who are fighting for good schools, safe neighborhoods, clean air, and clean airwaves. For older women, some of them widows, who find that after raising their families, their skills and life experiences are not valued in the marketplace. For women who are working all night as nurses, hotel clerks, or fast food chefs so that they can be at home during the day with their children. And for women everywhere who simply don't have time to do everything they are called upon to do each and every day. Speaking to you today, I speak for them just as each of us speaks for women around the world who are denied the chance to go to school or see a doctor or own property or have a say about the direction of their lives simply because they are women. The truth is that most women around the world work both inside and outside the home, usually by necessity. We need to understand there is no one formula for how women should lead our lives. That is why we must respect the choices that each woman makes for herself and her family. Every woman deserves the chance to realize her own God-given potential. But we must recognize that women will never gain full dignity until their human rights are respected and protected. Our goals for this conference to strengthen families and societies by empowering women to take greater control over their own destinies cannot be fully achieved unless all governments here and around the world accept their responsibility to protect and promote internationally recognized human rights. The in international community has long acknowledged and recently reaffirmed at Vienna that both women and men are entitled to a range of protections and personal freedoms from the right of personal security to the right to determine freely the number and spacing of the children they bear. No one No one should be forced to remain silent for fear of religious or political persecution, arrest, abuse, or torture. Tragically, women are most often the ones whose human rights are violated. Even now, in the late 20th century, the rape of women continues to be used as an instrument of armed conflict. Women and children make up a large majority of the world's refugees. And when women are excluded from the political process, they become even more vulnerable to abuse. I believe that now on the eve of a new millennium, it is time to break the silence. It is time for us to say here in Beijing and for the world to hear that it is no longer acceptable to discuss women's rights as separate from human rights.
abuses have continued because for too long, the history of women has been a history of silence. Even today, there are those who are trying to silence our words. But the voices of this conference and of the women at YRO must be heard loudly and clearly. It is a violation of human rights when babies are denied food or drowned or suffocated or their spines broken simply because they are born girls. a violation of human rights when women and girls are sold into the slavery of prostitution for human greed and the kinds of reasons that are used to justify this practice should no longer be tolerated. violation of human rights when women are doused with gasoline set on fire and burned to death because their marriage dowries are deemed too small. It is a violation of human rights when individual women are raped in their own communities and when thousands of women are subjected to rape as a tactic or prize of war. violation of human rights when a leading cause of death worldwide among women ages 14 to 44 is the violence they are subjected to in their own homes by their own relatives. a violation of human rights when young girls are brutalized by the painful and degrading practice of genital mutilation. It is a violation of human rights when women are denied the right to plan their own families, and that includes being forced to have abortions or being sterilized against their will. If there is one message that echoes forth from this conference, let it be that human rights are women's rights and women's rights are human rights once and for all. those rights are the right to speak freely and the right to be heard. Women must enjoy the rights to participate fully in the social and political lives of their countries if we want freedom and democracy to thrive and endure. It is indefensible that many women in non-governmental organizations who wish to participate in this conference have not been able to attend or have been pro prohibited from fully taking part. Let me be clear. 
Freedom means the right of people to assemble, organize, and debate openly. It means respecting the views of those who may disagree with the views of their governments. It means not taking citizens away from their loved ones and jailing them, mistreating them, or denying them their freedom or dignity because of the peaceful expression of their ideas and opinions. In my country, we recently celebrated the 75th anniversary of women's suffrage. It took 150 years after the signing of our Declaration of Independence for women to win the right to vote. It took 72 years of organized struggle before that happened on the part of many courageous women and men. It was one of America's most divisive philosophical wars, but it was a bloodless war. Suffrage was achieved without a shot being fired. But we have also been reminded in VJ Day observances last weekend of the good that comes when men and women join together to combat the forces of tyranny and to build a better world. We have seen peace prevail in most places for a half century. We have avoided another world war. But we have not solved older, deeply rooted problems that continue to diminish the potential of half the world's population. Now it is the time to act on behalf of women everywhere. If we take bold steps to better the lives of women, we will be taking bold steps to better the lives of children and families too. Families rely on mothers and wives for emotional support and care. Families rely on women for labor in the home. And increasingly, everywhere, families rely on women for income needed to raise healthy children and care for other relatives. As long as discrimination and inequities remain so commonplace everywhere in the world, as long as girls and women are valued less, fed less, fed last, overworked, underpaid, not schooled, subjected to violence in and outside their homes, the potential of the human family to create a peaceful, prosperous world will not be realized. Let, let this conference be our and the world's call to action. Let us heed that call so we can create a world in which every woman is treated with respect and dignity. Every boy and girl is loved and cared for equally. And every family has the hope of a strong and stable future. That is the work before you. That is the work before all of us who have a vision of the world we want to see for our children and our grandchildren. The time is now. We must move beyond rhetoric. We must move beyond recognition of problems to working together to have the common efforts to build that common ground we hope to see. God's blessings on you, your work, and all who will benefit from it. Godspeed and thank you very much.
That was First Lady Hillary Rodham Clinton's Women's Rights Are Human Rights speech delivered to the U.N. Fourth World Conference on Women Plenary Session on September 5, 1995, in Beijing, China. I'm Alan Chartok. You're listening to The Power of Words, a year-long series of programs that follows American history through some of the most memorable and inspiring political speeches of our time. Joining us on the program today is Dr. Alita Black, Professor of History and International Affairs at the George Washington University, author and project director and editor of the Eleanor Roosevelt Papers. Alita Black, what happens after Hillary Clinton gets gutsy, gives this incredible speech, is given tremendous response from the women who are listening to it. What about worldwide? Well, the worldwide response was just phenomenal, with the exception of China, because China had blocked out the speech so that it did not appear on Chinese radio or Chinese television, nor was it covered in the Chinese press. And in fact, when the senior party official at the conference, Chen Muha, was asked about the speech, you know, the response was, I- I'm sorry, I'm very, very busy. I cannot comment. And so the Chinese were so scared about the speech that they refused to comment publicly. However, I know from human rights activists in China that bootleg copies of the speech were circulated and the word spread throughout China very quickly for those who were trying to uh, make human rights more of a possibility within China. And within Africa and within Latin America and within India and Pakistan and the Soviet Union, it was a call to the barricades. It was a statement to women, I am with you. I will stand with you as you risk yourself to change the world. And I think another indication of the power of this speech is that Hillary then was asked by the NGOs, the more than 3,000 women who had traveled to Beijing who were denied by the Chinese government permission to attend the official summit, but were in fact holding their own parallel events out in the countryside, Hillary traveled out the next day to address them. And it was pouring down rain. I mean, teeming rain over, you know, muddy, unpaved roads where Hillary's car and security detail had to be stopped, and they had to walk through pouring down rain, you know, I mean, in ankle-deep mud, to go in and basically reiterate this before the NGOs, before civil society groups, before local activists who were, in fact, sort of surrogate delegates, if you will, to the conference, those people who were charged with holding the delegates' feet to the fire to practice what they preached when they got home. And so this speech really was the call to action to say, the world is watching now and we have your back. Alita Black, I need you to uh, just define NGOs. NGOs are non-governmental organizations. They're organizations like No Limits, an organization that I belong to, or the NAACP, or the Roosevelt Institute, or Church Women United. They are any civil society organization that has applied for official recognition by the United Nations in order to, to participate in any UN gathering. Now, domestically in the United States, 
women know about the speech, do enough Americans know about it? Well, I would say that up until Hillary's campaign for president, Americans didn't know as much about it as they should. I mean, it reverberated across the country with women that are involved in uh, women's organizations, whether they're church groups, whether they're political party groups, whether they're professional associations like AAUW. You know, it got taught in a lot of foreign policy class and a lot of great oratorical classes. But it really was, I think, during then Senator Clinton's campaign for the presidency that people began to really hear that Hillary had given the speech. But, you know, it was it was a gutsy move for the administration to make, if I could backtrack a little bit, because if you remember, I mean, this is the first term of the Clinton administration. I mean, remember the backlash over buy one, get one free? You know, and, and remember the the campaign against the Clintons that they were going to be a co-presidency and the, the great disparagement that Hillary's work for the Children's Defense Fund received. And people thought, oh, you know, she's this radical person who wants to take children away from their parents. I mean, please. So, but, you know, the Clinton administration risked this potential rebuke again by giving such a forceful speech. And so it was it was a really gutsy speech on its behalf, too. And I think now that those Americans who paid attention during the 08 campaign know about this speech, but they don't know um, the impact that the speech had, and they have forgotten how gutsy an event it was. If I may be personal for a moment, earlier I referred to being in Geneva in December 2010 for Eleanor Roosevelt's 125th birthday and to celebrate the 61st anniversary of the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And and what we did there was to convene uh, a summit for emerging women leaders who were committed to women's human rights. And every woman, all of the hundred women who were there, whether they were from Pakistan or Cambodia or Thailand or Kenya or Liberia or Nigeria or Colombia or Panama or Macedonia or Albania or Uzbekistan or Turkey, all of them came up to me to say how much this speech meant to them and how it encouraged them, it mobilized them to get involved. And so at the end of our summit, when Secretary Clinton received the Eleanor Roosevelt Lifetime Achievement Award in Human Rights and through a satellite broadcast into the United Nations Chambers in Geneva, the entire human rights community stood and cheered with full throttle voice as though she had walked out on the stage rather than appeared on, on a movie screen. And if you could have seen the women's faces... I mean, I'm talking hardened, crusty women, women who had been involved in anti-trafficking work, women who had been trafficked, women who had been imprisoned and tortured for their support for women's rights. The tears streaming down their face showed how important this speech still remains to them in their daily lives 15 years later. Into the second term, we saw... Hillary Clinton go on the Today Show and announce that the people aligned against her husband were a vast right-wing conspiracy. 
I watched it that morning. I'll never forget it. And I agreed with every word she said. Nevertheless, Me too. I did too. <laughs> nevertheless, she was ridiculed for it, you know, as if it couldn't happen in the United States. But I guess that was a sort of demonstration of her gutsiness. Well, it is a demonstration of her gutsiness. And I think it's a demonstration of the power of the media which is why I believe so strongly in your work and the work of people that don't believe in five-second sound bites. So I, well, I know that Hillary is gutsy. Anybody who runs for president and puts themselves out there is gutsy. I mean, because your whole life is open to speculation and innuendo and the reporting of innuendo as fact. And that, you know, that's a dangerous thing. And now with unlimited money in campaign finance and, and, you know, it makes it even more volatile and personal and I think vicious. But Hillary is gutsy and she will tell you what she thinks. She will risk herself on principles that she holds dear. And um, like Eleanor Roosevelt, she's not a purist. She understands that politics is the game of the possible. She understands that compromise is good as long as you compromise up. And she knows how to get things done. But she also knows when it is time to speak from the heart and speak from the brain to challenge the world to act. And I think that's what this speech does. And it shows how truly tough she is. Were you surprised, as a Hillary watcher, expert, educator, were you surprised uh, when she gave up a United States Senate seat to become Secretary of State and accept her former adversary, political adversary, Barack Obama's offer? No, because that's who this woman is. I mean, she is going to do what she thinks people need her to do. And Hillary is not petty. I've worked with a lot of politicians in my life. I'm 59 years old, and most of the time, if you have serious disagreements, it's the end of the relationship. With Secretary Clinton, it's engagement. It's, okay, well, we got to figure this out. Let's come back. I mean, I've had conversations with her where six months later, she's picked up right where we left off, and my jaw just dropped, you know, which shows that she really pays attention to what you say. And... I think what people don't understand about Hillary Clinton is that she is a true patriot. And I do not use that word lightly. She loves this country. And she understands on levels, so many levels, unique levels, levels that that few people have ever experienced, what it takes in volatile times to keep people at the table, to keep your eyes on the prize, and to keep working for the goal that you want to achieve. And so when Barack Obama asked her to become Secretary of State, I had no doubt in my mind that Secretary Clinton would accept it because she believes in the work of the State Department. She was exceedingly and is exceedingly well-traveled. She knew most of the elected leaders and appointed leaders around the world. But just as importantly, she had met with so many NGOs, so many civil society leaders, so many individual activists and leaders who had risked their lives for a better world that she would feel that that's her obligation. 
And so I'm proud she did it. I have a sense, don't you, that she has more political autonomy, more autonomy as a force as Secretary of State than previous Secretaries of State have had. I would say that, certainly in in recent memory. But, you know, John Kennedy was his own Secretary of State. You know, McNamara and others in defense in the Johnson administration had limited effect. I mean, Henry Kissinger certainly had power because he had a close relationship with President Nixon. And he had two jobs, right? He had two jobs. He had had two jobs. And also, Baker certainly had different um, relationships as, as sort of a global troubleshooter, if you will, sort of an ambassador with, with multiple portfolios. But I would say yes, not just in terms of what the administration has offered her and the negotiations that went on to you know, secure that, but also because of the relationships that she has in her own right around the world. Many politicians want to grab hold of power and keep it at any cost. In other words, uh, I taught a course called, once called The Creation and Maintenance of Political Power. So, <laughs> and that the maintenance part becomes greater than the principles. But I think I hear you telling me that this is a very unusual person in that that is not the case here. That is definitely not the case. You are not looking at someone who is power-hungry and will snap, you know, in any position that comes up no matter how insignificant, but how grandiose the title, you know, in order to to pad their resume or get more ink. I mean, that's not who Hillary Clinton is. I mean, she cares passionately about health care. She cares passionately about development. She cares passionately about women and girls and microfinance. This is a woman who is issue-focused. This is a woman who is not about herself. She's about the goals. And that is why she is so respected and feared around the world and feared by people who, who want to manipulate her. And they know that this is not some token appointment by the administration. This is a woman who has formidable power in her own right and influence and who understands policy and understands development and understands defense. I mean, look at now. I mean, there are, you know, rumors abounding. You know, you know is she going to be Secretary of Defense? I mean, you know, I mean, nobody sees her as a wuss, and nobody sees her as second fiddle, and nobody sees her as someone who is trying to resurrect a failing career. I mean, give me a break. Those people who may think that need to learn how to read or at least clean the wax out of their ears and listen to television and radio. So as we sit here in this year, 2010, and I thought you were going to, when you said speculation, talk to us about the speculation that she might run against the man who appointed her secretary of state in a primary. This has been largely dismissed by her and by everybody else who who watches this, but she's not the kind of person who would do that, is she? No, no, it's not going to happen. More? I mean, Hillary, (laughs) it's just not. It's just not. (laughs) History will treat... Hillary Rodham Clinton, how? Well, the, you know, the history's not over yet. She's got a long time in front of her. I mean, you know, I'm still holding out for 2016, you know, despite what she says. But history will treat Hillary Rodham Clinton as, I would say, one of the two most influential women and powerful women of the 20th century. If you look at her ability to articulate 
and to incorporate individual concerns into American policy. If you look at her ability to handle just the most enormous public humiliation with grace and courage and say, you know, it's, it's not going to distract me from my family or from my country, that is an, an act of enormous patriotism. But what you will see from Hillary is the woman who articulated and who led nations, not just the United States, but who led nations into a new understanding of what security means, of what human rights means, of what negotiation means, of what it means to be an American, what it means to be a citizen of the world, and what it means to say, I can lead, watch me. Don't read my lips, watch what I do. My actions and my network and the friendships and the coalitions that we build together shows that it really takes a village to move the world forward. And I think that is Hillary's great legacy, that women are in the village, they lead some, they are key players in those that may be led by men, and that for us to advance and to address economic crises, military crises, health care crises, religious crises, the crises of persecution, that we have to stay involved and that we have to acknowledge that we are all on trial to show what democracy means and that we must risk all ourselves in its pursuit. And that's her legacy. Wow. Unfortunately, we are out of time. I want to thank our expert today, Dr. Alita Black, professor of history and international affairs at the George Washington University, author and project director and editor of the Eleanor Roosevelt Papers. Thanks also to our wonderful producer, David Gustina, who's done all the hard work, the William Jefferson Clinton Presidential Library and Museum for providing the speech, and a special thank you to Bob Bullock from the New York State Archives Partnership Trust. Remember, you can listen to any of our programs online at wamc.org. Be sure to join us next time for another discussion about a great political speech on the power of words. You've been listening to a February 2011 Power of Words program with our Alan Shartalk interviewing Dr. Alita Black about First Lady Hillary Rodham Clinton's women's rights or human rights speech to the U.N. To find out more or listen again, just head to wamc.org. Thanks for listening.